Did she get back there? All good. Amen. Well, I'm glad. Thank you for letting me know that. I'd hate for them to sit back there and not get uh, get what they needed today. So let's, you can open your Bibles to Hebrews, guys. We'll go back to Hebrews 12. We'll get there here in just a little while. And I uh, just want to start out this morning and begin our message, if you will, with a, a simple question. I ask you, what do, what do you, have you ever considered maybe what makes Jesus joyful, the, the joy of Jesus, if you will? And have you ever thought in your life that what would make him happy? Now, again, I understand joy and happiness are two different things. Happiness is a result of what happens. Uh, it's possible to be unhappy and still be joyful. And that's, a, of course, a, a lesson or a discussion for a later date. But I just want you to think this morning, in your heart, in your mind, in your thought, in your brain, what makes Jesus have joy? What makes him have joy? We talk about the joy of Jesus in our life and how joyful we can be because Jesus is in our life and he's our Savior, he's our Messiah. We talk about those things, but what about him? What would make Jesus Christ have joy uh, in his life? Now, the Apostle Paul gives us instructions in uh, Philippians 4, 4, saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He, he says again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, Rejoice evermore. Now, now seeing that, that Paul would have learned this idea of joy or rejoicing, he would have learned this by revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he, said, he uses the word rejoice ten times and the word joy another six times just in writing his letter uh, to the church at Philippi. All of this, guys, again, comes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. It comes by revelation of Jesus Christ. And I'm nearly certain in my heart today that it would have been a topic that he would have taught the church of Antioch, which, remember, is the first Gentile church where the disciples were called Christians first there in Antioch. And we can surmise that the topic of joy in Jesus or the joy of Jesus would have been part of his teaching there. But what, in your mind today, do you think makes Jesus joyful? What would make him rejoice evermore? I'm personally quite sure that when the Lord was on this earth, he was joyful when he called Andrew and Simon Peter to follow him, and he, they obeyed. I believe that would be true. Matthew 4, 18 through 20 says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, and for they were fishers, and he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. I would say this morning, that made Jesus Christ joyful. I honestly think uh, uh, at the least it would make him happy, but I do believe it made him joyful. I think he was joyful when the two brothers called the sons of thunder, according to Mark's ch Mark chapter 3 and verse 17, who is James and John, if you remember them. Hey, listen, I, that would make me joyful. Those are the guys, I want those guys on my team, if you will, the sons of thunder. Man, I like that. But what about the centurion that came to him seeking the healing of his servant? He exercises faith unseen in all of Israel. Luke 7, 9 says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and, uh, and turned about him and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. Don't you think that would make him joyful? I believe Jesus Christ was excited when this centurion, who owed Jesus nothing, yet he was not part of, a, of Israel, he was not part of a, of a tribe, he was a, a Gentile man, and yet he came to Christ having faith that was unseen in all of Israel. Or what about that Syrophoenician woman? I know I use her as an example quite often, but it's a tremendous story. 
She came to Jesus Christ on her knees. She came to the Lord seeking a spiritual cleansing of her, her daughter. And uh, she ignored being referred to as a dog, but rather used it to show her faith that Jesus could heal her daughter. In Matthew 15, she says there very clearly, and she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. You think that make Jesus Christ joyful? I think so. I mean, in all of these cases, guys, and there's many, many more that we could use as illustrations, there is no doubt that Jesus was joyful, but truly addressing the question this morning, what brings joy to Jesus? Imagine with me today, just real quick, you're a practitioner of some sort. Imagine uh, that you've labored your entire life, that you have the tools to help people. You have the capabilities to treat people's ailments. And, and now you're in a place in your life where you can go to a field and you can do so as a missionary. So just think what it would be like if you have set up your location, you have all your medication, your treatment rooms, your rehab facility, you've got all the knowledge that you've gained to diagnose and to treat diseases in the area, all free of charge as a, as a medical missionary, if you will. And yet you find out, all the people say, nope, I'm good. Nope, I can handle it myself. How would that make you feel? Distraught? down depressed absolutely it would and then one day someone is hurting they're in pain and they're in dire need of assistance and you treat that person and they get better and their sickness is healed and when the townsfolk see this others begin to come seeking treatment for what ails them now you're able to fulfill your calling you're able to help others. You're able to, to put your labor and your experience to good use. How would that make you feel then? Joyful, wouldn't you agree? Would it be work? Would it be tiresome? Would it be weary? Absolutely. But it would bring joy to your heart to be able to do what you called to be done to help others. Now, in our text this morning in Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible tells us in verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, guys, Hebrews 12 obviously is on the heels of Hebrews chapter 11, known as the Hall of Faith. Those cloud of witnesses are not someone looking down, cheering us on, as we've heard other people preach. That is an erroneous illustration or erroneous interpretation of Hebrews 12.1. That great a cloud of witnesses are all of those who have gone before us, who have exercised faith through some of the most treacherous times, and they've continued to be successful in their spiritual life, be it in the Old Testament or be it in the New Testament. That is what is referred to, that we have a pattern set before us that others have followed that we can follow the same. Paul says, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us. The word beset means to hinder. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want you to look at me, look, look with me today again at verse 2. 
And we're going to break it down just a little bit by way of introduction this morning. The Bible says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He becomes an example for us to follow. It goes on to say, uh, uh, who for the joy that was set before him. There was a joy on the other side of an event which was worth experiencing. The Bible tells me that he endured the cross. Philippians 2.8 tells us, And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The Bible says, despising the shame. Galatians 3.13 tells us, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And then the closing statement says it. And is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, at first glance, one would think the joy set before our Lord would be sitting down at the right hand of the throne of the Father, which I'm sure there was joy when they were reunited. I believe that because the only time in eternity past, eternity future, present day events, whatever it may be, the Son and the Father were separated for a three-hour period upon the cross of Calvary. When the darkness came across that land was when Jesus Christ had to become sin for us. And when he became sin for us to pay mankind's sin debt, there is no doubt that when they were re reunited one with another, that there was joy. But I'm not fully convinced that the joy spoken of here in Hebrews chapter 12 is the joy of them being reunited. And there's, here's one reason I say this. I believe they were reunited as the triune God at the death of Jesus Christ. Into my hands I give my spirit, he said. He said, it is finished, did he not? I believe that the Father and the Son were reunited one with another as Jesus Christ went and preached unto men in the heart of the earth when he rose again the third day, when he ascended on high to a place where his perfect blood was placed upon the mercy seat in heaven, when he took captivity captive with himself, uh, then when he re returned down here for the remainder of the 40 days and then ascended into heaven a final time outside of Bethany and was sat down at the right hand of the Father. I believe all during that time, they were reunited one with another. This joy is different. There's a different joy that we find in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 today that I believe in all of my heart should speak volumes to us. It puts a responsibility into our life. It puts a responsibility into our heart. Mind you, it should put conviction into our souls. What would you call someone if all they did was take, 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 and take, never give, what would you call that person? I'm not going to volunteer any, any, any words. You just, you, you fix it in your own mind what you would call that person. They're always taking and never giving. You know, Jesus Christ paid a debt for mankind. And today, there, to my knowledge, there are millions upon this earth who are saved and born again. But out of those millions, I wonder how many are given back. I wonder how many are given back into what gift they've been given. See, this joy that Jesus had that was set before him, this joy is similar to our story of the practitioner just moments ago. 
who worked his entire career to get to a place where he could devote his life to helping those in need, free of charge as a medical missionary. He was broken when, he, uh, when the unwanted, did not, when, or when he was unwanted, but he was joyous when he was awarded the opportunity to put his gifts to work. This is the joy that I'm speaking of this morning. This is the joy that I'm speaking of today. This is the joy of Jesus, guys, who needed to endure the cross so mankind could be saved and sealed under the day of redemption. The first thing I want us to see is there was joy set before. In verse 2, we find a, a joy set before, meaning there was something that Jesus Christ must endure, uh, that Jesus must perform in order for this joy to become a reality in his life. This joy would only be made available if the Lord himself would take on board what was needed to give him the power to reconcile, reconcile mankind to the Father. Colossians chapter 1, you can read it from the screen, says in verse 19 through 23, it says, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, and by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether it be things in earth or, in he or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, that's us, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you a holy and unbelievable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. This is where we find Jesus' joy. Matter of fact, this is where Jesus finds his joy, if you will, reconciling mankind to the far, being willing to take on board what was necessary before him, the shameful death of the cross, in order to be able to cleanse sin of those who freely choose to accept the gift of salvation. He does not force it on anyone. You have the freedom to choose it. I mean, what joy would it be for Jesus Christ today if he had to force his salvation, force his gift upon someone? Think about it. Common sense tells you that a gift ceases to be a gift if it's forced upon you. Now it's a requirement. There is no joy in him forcing that upon us. So first we find that Jesus has joy in forgiving sins, forgiving souls for all eternity. I want that to sink in this morning with you. I want it to sink in your heart today. Because Jesus Christ is sat at the right hand of the throne of the Father. He's not coming back to this world, and the next time he puts his foot on this earth, he sets his kingdom up. The next time he steps off his throne, he takes his bride out. That is the time limit, guys. There are no, you are not going to be able to witness to a lost and dying soul today once that trump sounds. Once he descends from heaven to catch his bride away, the opportunity you have to be a witness to the lost and dying is lost forever. The only opportunity you have is now. I've said it time and time again. Missions is the heartbeat of God, but it's in our hands. And he's not going to do it without us. You understand that today. He doesn't need us but he's not going to do it without us. So there is a joy set before him. There is a joy sitting, a joy sitting. We must remember the purpose of Paul's writing of the book of Hebrews. 
Jesus is the high priest who ends all high priests. He becomes the final sacrifice to cleanse uh, instead of cover sins. He made two one, bringing peace into our life, and it brings joy to him to do so. That's, it, that's the book in a nutshell. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18 tells us this, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances. For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And came and preached peace to you which were far off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Again, joy. The joy of Jesus is when he is enabled to exercise the healing of forgiveness to a willing soul. But the sitting at the right hand of the Father is significant for us today. It signifies something. It signifies, of which is also found in the book of Hebrews, but it signifies an ending, a closure, a finality, if you will. And that's what enables Jesus to have that joy. You can look at three verses I'll give you from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1.3 says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When he had purged our sins, sat down. There's something significant. The closure that you find, the joy in sitting. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1, now of the things which we have spoken, this is, 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 this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, it says. Majesty in heavens. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. One sacrifice for all sins forever. And he sat down. In all three of these texts, we find the concluding atoning work of Jesus Christ. We find the final high priest. And as he sat at the right hand of the Father, he's reconnecting heaven and earth once again through his sacrifice on the cross, thus becoming our mediator between God and man. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So, beloved, we find all of these things, and every bit of them, we find the seat of Christ's joy. We, we want to know what, we want to know how to have joy in our life, and then we look and see what brings Jesus Christ joy. It's him being able to do the work that he was made for, that he came to this earth for, his purpose, the forgiving of sins for souls, the sealing for all eternity for men, women, and children. So finally, guys, that we have already seen, there is joy in Jesus set before him. It causes him to endure uh, the cross before experiencing the joy. There is joy in sitting at the right hand of the Father. He has now become our mediator, our go-between, our propitiation. Lastly, this morning, there's joy secured. Again, I come back to the joy of Jesus. And I really want you to focus here because in all fairness, the final point is the bulk of the message. It's not really nowhere near being finished. But it is the bulk of the sermon this morning because it's what puts everything together. What makes him joyful? Well, the payment to secure souls of men, women, and children. 
we are secured in the death of the cross, the shameful, explicit death of the cross. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25 says, For whom, uh, for, uh, I'm sorry, whom God has set forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Can I say this to you this morning, guys, that we ought not ever confuse this payment on the cross as being easy. There's nothing easy about it. The events of Calvary are as horrific as they are heroic. Our world has sanitized the day of the cross to the point that we're unmoved anymore. Yet it is the events of this very day which has secured our souls for salvation. It is the events of this very day which enables Jesus Christ to sit at the right hand of the Father to act as our mediator. It is the events of this very day which uh, were set before the joy of Jesus to reconcile men and women to the Father uh, who would choose to accept the free gift. But the gift was only free to the recipient. We need to understand that. Our understanding of the crucifixion is paramount in how we act and react to the joy of Jesus. Much of our suffering and pain we experience is brought on by what I refer to as a disillusion of the cross of Christ, our own belief about what actually happened on that cross. Guys, we make poor choices in our life many times, not because we forget what Jesus did, but because we have an inappropriate view of how he experienced it. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 17 that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities, and bear our sickness. I realize, guys, that it can be quite difficult at times to reconcile the fact that Jesus on this earth was 100% God while it's 100% man. I understand. I, I, I get it. I understand that it may be difficult for you to reconcile that in your head. I said it time and time again. God's not interested in you understanding it. He's not interested in you reconciling it. He is only and simply interested in you and me, believe in it. It's the truth. His suffering on the cross was nothing compared to the suffering we will ever experience. We've not seen a shred of suffering and pain remotely close to the cross of Calvary. And it is that very thing that stood between Jesus and joy. Our image, our imagination, our memory of what we have seen and developed in our mind to the events of the cross have a long-standing effect and outcome in our life. The choices we make, the decisions, the invites to church and the sharing of the gospel all are related to what image we have in our minds concerning the suffering of the cross. We've developed or conditioned or have conditioned learning of what happened on the cross that day through a series of things in our life. Those things can be paintings, they can be statues, they can be films, and yes, even our own interpretation in our own mind. The Bible tells me that Jesus Christ was beaten and bludgeoned. Those are not pretty words, by the way. As a matter of fact, if you use those words in today's society, today's society will lose their ever-loving gourd because we have a weak society today. We have a weak-minded society today that can't handle words like bludgeoned 
and beaten. Although they'll go to a film and they'll watch people be beaten and bludgeoned and they'll be entertained by that. But then when you get out in the streets and the words are mentioned, the snowflakes go ballistic. 741 years prior to this day on the cross, the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 52, 14, as many were astonished at that, at the, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. That's part of what happened that day on the cross. That's part of what happened that day that was set before him. Before he got joy, he was beaten and bludgeoned. We know he was stripped naked, and it was prophesied in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. They parted my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. John 19, verse 1 tells us, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Now we have sanitized the scourging. We have put this image in our mind of, of someone being beaten with a whip. 20 lashes, 10 lashes, 39 lashes, 40 lashes, whatever it may be. But beloved, the word scourge means to pull apart. For two reasons. Number one, because the leather is pulled apart and the stones and the, and the rock and the metal are intertwined in between what we refer to as a cat of nine tails. But number two, because of what it performs onto the recipient. Whereas it literally pulls apart the flesh. You see, the scourge cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissue, producing a, an oozing of blood, if you will, from the, the capillaries and the veins of, this, of the skin. Finally, spurting out arterial bleeding from vessels and the underlying muscles, the small pieces of metal and stone and bone are ripped open, ripped open the flesh across his back by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging and long ribbons and the entire area is unrecognizable, an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. You get the picture now with me? Does that change your sanitized view of what Jesus experienced that day with a handful of cuts on his back, carrying the cross down the road? John 19.2 tells us, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Those soldiers uh, forced a three-plus-inch thorns into his head. Now, there's five layers to the scab. There's eight nerve innervations throughout the same region, all of which are hypersensitive to piercing pain. There's an abundance of bleeding when the scalp is pierced because it's one of the most vascularized areas on the body. After mocking Jesus Christ and striking him across the face and pulling his beard out, the soldiers would take the staff or the stick from his hand, and they would strike him across the head, forcing the crown of thorns deeper inside of his skin. When they removed the robe from his back, where the body, where the blood had already clotted, if you will, when they removed that robe, would cause excruciating pain as if he was being whipped again, reopening those same wounds across. Do you get the picture now this morning? of what stood between Jesus Christ and his joy. See, we always think of joy about joy, 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 deep down inside my heart. All that, we think about us. We think about our own joy. When's the last time you considered Christ's joy? When's the last time you got up in the morning time and you thought about his joy? Or did you just think about your own? 
how joyful you are. How joyful you're going to be today. At the cross, the legionnaire would feel for the depression in the wrist right here. He would feel that depression in that hand. He would drive this heavy square, wrought iron nail through the wrist deep inside the wood. Quickly move to the other side and repeat the same actions. He would be careful not to pull the arms too tight, but allow just a little bit of flexion for movement upon the cross. And the cross beam then would be lifted up onto the tree and then dropped down as Christ's full body weight would land upon his hands. His left foot would be pressed backward against the right foot and with both feet extended, toes down, another square, five to seven inch nail is driven through the arch of each feet leaving the knees moderately flexed to give him the ability to push his ribcage off his lungs to die slowly. Our Lord would slowly sag down with more weight on the nails and the wrists. Excruciating pain would shoot forth along the fingers up into the arm and would explode into the brain. The nails in the wrist are putting pressure on what's known as the median nerve. The spike which nailed his body to the cross would have set ablaze the central nervous system, sending fire-like pain through his entire body. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he would place his full weight on the nail through his feet and the perch behind, again sending searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the foot. At this point, his arms would begin to fatigue, Great waves of cramps would sweep over the muscles, knotting them into deep, relentless, throbbing pain. And with these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are now paralyzed. The intercostal muscles are unable to act and force air in and out of his lungs. Air can be drawn into his lungs, but it could not be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to, to, to get even one short breath. And finally, carbon dioxide would build up inside of his lungs. And then the bloodstream and the cramps will continue to go throughout his body. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring life-given oxygen, only to extend his torment further. It's during these bleak moments of exhalation over the course of three and a half hours. He utters the seven sayings. This is when the darkness falls upon the land. He had already been on there for a multitude of hours. But he utters the seven sayings of Christ on the cross, one of which is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The physical pain is only exacerbated by the mental and emotional pain that the Father in heaven had to inflict as he had to turn his back along with all heaven upon the Son of God in order for him to pay the sin debt of the world. Beloved, Jesus Christ experienced hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rendering cramps, intermediate partial, partial asphyxiation, searing pain where tissue was torn from his lacerated back as he moved up and down the rough timber. And then another agony begins. A terrible, crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium begins to slowly fill up with serum and begins to compress his heart. One now will remember the 22nd Psalm in the 14th verse that says, I am poured out like water, 
and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nails, straightens his legs, takes a deep breath, and utters a seventh and last cry, committing his spirit unto the Father. Death. Death came by way of his chest cavity and lungs, filling up slowly with water. The legionnaire would drive his lance through the fifth intercostal muscle, Upward through the pericardium into the heart. And the Bible says, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith there, uh, forthwith came there out blood and water. So now what do you believe? What is your belief of the events of the cross now? A pain-free, all-powerful God on the cross just ticking a box? Or the man Christ Jesus taking on the sin of the world? And the most excruciating example of all of which is evil in this world. All of this, guys, listen carefully, we're almost done. All of this stood between Jesus and joy. What about his joy? For the joy that was set before him on the other side of the cross of Calvary. On the other side of the scourging, on the other side of the denials, on the other side of the ridicule, on the other side of the crown of thorns, on the other side of the betrayal, that's where his joy was. Jesus' joy set before him, enabled him to sit at the right hand of the Father to secure our redemption by enduring the shame of a despicable death. Yet nonetheless, he went through it anyway. He did it. You know why he did it? He did it so he could forgive. And that's what brought the joy of Jesus in his heart. You see, my friend, Jesus Christ experienced all of that to bring an end, a conclusion, a final sacrifice to cleanse, not just cover, to cleanse all sin for those who freely will come to him. So, beloved, when a soul comes to Christ, be it here in the church, on the street and city center, or in the mission field afar off that you are supporting, there's joy in Jesus. You want to make Jesus joyful today? Lead somebody to Christ. You want to make Jesus joyful today? Plant a seed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ into a soul's heart. You want to make Jesus joyful today? Support missions worldwide and local through the local church. You want, to, you, want to, you want to make Jesus joyful today? Then sell out and don't look back. And become a soldier of the cross. For it was that cross, my friend, that stood in between Jesus and his joy. And what brings him joy today is fulfilling his purpose and why he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Every soul that is forgiven brings joy to the Savior's heart. Will you bow your heads this morning? Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for who and what you are, for all that you've done, and we pray now for your continual blessings and forgiveness in our life. We thank you, Lord, for what you experienced on the cross, undeserving by you and fully deserving by us. 
But Lord, I pray that we would not take grace for granted. I pray, dear God, in the day and age that we are living in today, where we live in an entitled society, I ask you to instill in everyone's heart who is within earshot this morning, be it here locally or online, that they would realize that we deserve nothing in this life but death. We don't deserve a government to pay for us. The government's not here to, to provide for us, to serve us. But we have a God who so loved us that he sent his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let us today see us as an undeserving soul for the grace that was bestowed into this world during this time through the love that our Lord and Savior had, who was willing to go through all of those things on the cross for that joy that he may receive in reconciling his creation unto himself. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. We praise his wonderful name on high. Amen and amen. I do hope and pray that the preaching and teaching of the Word of God was a blessing to your heart this morning.